You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, at this time, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. At a press conference in 1976, Dr. Daniel Borstein of the Library of Congress approached the cameras with a little blue box taken from a small closet that held the library's antiquities. The label on the box read, Contents of the President's Pockets on the night of April 14, 1865. Of course, this was the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. So everyone held their breath as the box was opened. Dr. Borstein proceeded to remove the contents and display them for the cameras. There were five things in the box. A handkerchief embroidered with the words, A. Lincoln. A country boy's pen knife. A glasses case repaired with a piece of string. And a purse containing a $5 bill of Confederate money, no less. And finally, some old worn newspaper clippings. Borstein said the clippings were all about the great deeds of Mr. Abraham Lincoln. And one of them actually reported a speech by John Bright saying that Abraham Lincoln is, quote, one of the greatest men of all times. Today we would consider that common knowledge, but back in 1865, millions would have disagreed with that statement. The president had many critics and cruel enemies. One writer has said his was a lonely agony that reflected the suffering and turmoil of his country, ripped to shreds by hatred and a cruel, costly war. He goes on to say that there is something touchingly pathetic in the mental picture of this great leader seeking solace and self-assurance from a few old newspaper clippings as he reads them under the flickering flame of a candle all alone in the Oval Office. The truth is, loneliness comes for everyone because life is full of sorrow. Some folks spend most of their lives living alone. Some have an unbelieving spouse or unsaved family members who resent them constantly. Uh, still others have co-workers who rail against them for one reason or another. And, and there, are, there are many, several, who just simply grow old. And, and their friends and their relatives eventually pass on. I mean, whatever the cause, whatever the case, most of us either have known or will know what it feels like to have no one to turn to for understanding. You can be one of the most loved and well-remembered presidents in United States history and still be lonely. In today's psalm, we have a king who feels lonely, isolated, alienated, and far from God. In in this psalm, he, he sets his prayer to music, and, and his soul, as a result, it rises from pain to praise. So please follow along as, as I read it for us. Psalm 61. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. 
listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So that so will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. There are times in life when the pain and the anguish we feel is so great and so overwhelming, we find it hard to pray. It's not that we don't love the Lord or know where to turn when the waters rise. We just lack the confidence and the frame of mind to seek help where we need it the most. The title of today's message is For the Faint of Heart, but I almost titled it How to Pray When You Can't. Because that's what David provides for us here in this song. Originally, it was set to music so we wouldn't forget it, so we could put it on repeat, so we could learn it, so that we could, we could carry it around in our head to a melody, to a tune, so that it would stick with us, so it would stay, stay attached to the insides of our brains. This piece has two parts separated by a sila in the middle. So logically, it provides two good reasons for us to pray when we can't pray. When life has suffocated your senses and and you have little to no strength left. Here are two good reasons with several subpoints for support. To rise above your circumstances by taking your troubles to the Lord. Reason number one. In the first four verses, we see that God keeps his people. God keeps his people. Our, Our journey begins with a very strong petition here in verse one. He says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. This word for my cry, it's a very vocal word. It's a loud word. It's excited. This isn't a quiet cry like like the sniffles. This is a shrill scream for help. David isn't whimpering. He's wailing. He's crying out to God, and he's, he's desperate enough to demand an audience. There's no tone here of, please, Lord, if you're willing, or would you maybe? No, his anguish requires an audience. He tells God, hear me, pay attention to my pain. I need you to listen to this. You know, sometimes I wonder if our prayers are weak because we are too afraid to approach God confidently. It's so easy for us to fall into one of two mindsets when it comes to prayer. We might think, well, God knows everything anyway. He knows my heart. He, he knows my needs. So I, I don't need to bother him or, or even express myself to him because he already knows how bad it is. Or we may fall on the other side of that cliff. We, we might think, I've said my prayers. I've done my duty. 
I've taken it to God, and now the rest is up to him. I mean, we'll see what he does. Either way, we underestimate God's desire for us to take our desires to him. And we lack the faith and confidence that that God really does care about our difficulties, and he will respond. You see, David has a relationship with God that is so close, he just blubbers. He's, God, I am in agony. Uh, Pay attention to me. Listen to what I am saying. Verse 2 goes on to describe how he's feeling. He says, from the end of the earth, I call to you. That's a poetic way of saying, I'm as far away from you as I can be. I'm not only at the end of myself, I'm at the end of the earth. He's feeling distant from God. Like he's on one side of a large field and God is on the other. And God might not hear him if he whispers, so he strains his voice and he calls out across the distance, hoping that God will turn around and notice the muffled cries of a small speck off in the distance. That's the picture that he describes because he feels alienated and isolated and distant from God. It's not that God has moved or abandoned him. Not not at all. But David has somehow found himself on the other side of the planet. Far away from the God that he needs. At least that's how he feels. But it's worse than that. Not only does he feel distant, he also feels depressed. He says, from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. This word faint is a powerful, an emotional word. It it means to cover in darkness, to surround with shadow, to languish in distress. A, a, A fainting heart is emotionally exhausted. It's running on fumes. It's thinner than air. Perhaps the the best way to illustrate this feeling is to see how this word is used elsewhere. So just flip over with me real quickly to Psalm 102. Psalm 102, just for a moment. We won't read the entire thing now, but look look at the superscription there at the very beginning. It says, A prayer of one afflicted when he is, and there's our word, faint. And pours out his complaint before the Lord. So so this is a psalm. This is a psalm that contains a Holy Spirit-inspired description of a faint heart. Look at verse 3. This is what a faint heart looks like. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass. And has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. For who do, those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger for you have taken up taken me up and thrown me down my days 
are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Wow, what a poetic depiction for the overwhelming darkness of an exhausted heart. Charles Spurgeon wrote, When the huge waves of trouble wash over me, and I am completely submerged, not only as to my head, but also to my heart. It is hard to pray when the very heart is drowning, yet gracious men plead best at such times. Tribulation brings us to God and brings God to us. He's right. When your heart is weak, you don't feel like praying. You, you feel like turning off the lights, like feeling sorry for yourself because nobody else will. You, you don't want to talk to anyone, let alone God. And yet the best prayers come from a drowning heart. When we are at our worst, God is at his best. When, when we drown in our sorrows, prayer must fill the final bubbles that escape our screaming lips as we continue to sink lower and lower and lower into the depths. To quote Spurgeon again, he, he said, there is an end to a man when he makes an end to prayer. Listen, when, when life falls apart, you can't afford to sit there in silence. You have to cry out to God. You have to pray. It doesn't matter how bad things get. I mean, look at David. David didn't have it good. David was, was in a bad spot. I mean, it's one thing to be down and out and to fall into depression. It's another thing to be both depressed and distant from God. So what does David do? He takes a deep breath. He fills his lungs and he shouts he shouts for God's attention. He says, lead me once in verse two. And he says, let me twice in verse four. He wants guidance and acceptance from a God strong enough to protect him, preserve him, and provide for him. And so he turns to the Lord knowing that his God keeps his people. Like all good prayers, this one is rich with real life theology. It contains four encouraging metaphors for the security that God provides for his people. When we are distressed, our God becomes these images for us. And David paints his theology with these four word pictures describing the different layers of the believer's safekeeping in the Lord. Number one, when we are distressed, he is our shelter. He is our shelter. And look at the rest of verse two. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And this idea of God being a rock appears at least 20 times in the Psalms. And it's a metaphor that is especially meaningful to David because he had to use the rocks in the Judean wilderness for protection more than once when he was on the run from Saul and then later again when he was running from his own son, Absalom. He was able to hide and find refuge in the rocks. He knew that wilderness country better than anyone because life and death meant knowing where to hide. Here he refers to God as his rock, his shelter in his distress. And we learn two things about this rock. Number one, it's higher than us. And number two, 
We can't find it on our own. We have to be led to it. Now, this reminder that God is infinitely higher than we are shouldn't surprise us. I mean, God himself says in Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that's an easy truth to accept when you're scraping at the bottom of the barrel. But let's not forget that David is king. He's king of all of Israel whenever he writes this. So when it comes to success in life, I mean, this man is literally king of the hill. I mean, he's got it all. There isn't anyone higher than this king. I mean, David answers to no man. David is his own man in every sense of the word. But he still recognizes that he does answer to God, which is something because we tend to forget about God when we find ourselves on top. And when we start believing our own press and we start thinking, I can handle this. I, I can deal with whatever, whenever it comes. I only discover when it does come, we can't. And David doesn't make that mistake, at least not here. He's the most powerful man in the land. The one that everyone looks up to. And he himself has to look up even higher. And he knows that he can't, he, he can't get there on his own. He needs to be led there. He needs to be taken to this rock by the Spirit of God himself. Look, look David knows he's in a funk. He knows he's, he, things are not right. He can sense that. He is not where he should be. And, and he is made aware of that. Like, but, but at the same time, he can't will himself out of despair. He needs God to, to actively intervene, to pull him out, to lead him back to right thinking and resting in the Lord. He, he can't get there on his own, so he draws from his well of experience with biblical truth, and he asks for God to bring him back from the end of the earth to the shelter of the highest rock he knows. Friend, when the lights go out, when your heart is faint, when you feel far away from God, all you can do is turn to the Lord, cry out for help, and say, bring me home, God. Bring me home. Stretch out your hand and lead me back. And the good news is, the good news is that God will. He will. He won't leave you hanging. He leaves the 99. He searches for the one and he carries him home. So when, when you don't feel like praying, remember God is not only your high shelter. He is your beacon in the storm and your guide in the night. He will be your refuge and he will bring you back to himself. That's the first metaphor. Number two, when we are distressed, God is our stronghold. God is our stronghold. Look at verse 3. He says, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Whereas a rock makes for an excellent shelter and, and, and hiding from the enemy, a tower or a stronghold ups the ante. It's not an isolated wilderness retreat. It's part of a fortified city. With the rock, we run and hide. With the tower, we stand and defend. And we don't do it alone. 
Notice the metaphor becomes a little bit more personal than, than the higher rock as well. He's looking back into his past and, and he's remembering those nights when God has been his stronghold. When times were tough and, and the odds were against him, it was the strong, mighty, impenetrable tower that protected him from death. I mean, think about it. What could possibly be stronger than the all-powerful God of creation? And David says, God is my refuge. He is my rock, kept high, out of reach from my trouble. And he is my tower who surrounds me with his power and guards me from evil. He is my shelter. He is my stronghold. But it gets better. Number three, when we are distressed, he is our sanctuary. He is our sanctuary. Look at how he begins verse four. He says, let me dwell in your tent forever. This word tent, it it conjures up ideas of home, where, where a host might welcome a guest. David is saying, I want to dwell in your home. I want to stay with you forever. In in a way, he's inviting himself over and letting God know that he he never wants to leave. But the word is even more meaningful and purposeful since it is often translated tabernacle, the the home of the ark where, where God's presence and glory dwelt. David doesn't want to be anywhere else. He wants to be with the Lord I mean, notice with with each of these metaphors, he's inching his way closer and closer and closer to God. He he moves from his shelter in the wilderness to his stronghold in a fortified city to his sanctuary in the Lord's home. Each step of the way, he's, he's getting more personal and he's closing the distance between himself and God until finally, number four, He says, when we are distressed, he is our safety. He is our safety. Finishing out verse four, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, David is not saying that God has wings. This is called a zoomorphism, where God is being compared to a bird who takes care of her chicks. This is a cry for intimate safety. And by now, David's desire has grown from protection to defense to hospitality to the warmest sense of security. At first glance, it might appear as though we have stepped backwards just for a bit. I mean, after all, how are a few feathers better than the rocks or a tower or a tabernacle? But remember, this request is the closest any of us could ever get to God himself. This request is to cozy up to our creator. It means putting your head on his chest and trusting him completely to keep you safe. This is a powerful image. It might not look like it, but this illustration is the best security of them all. It is far better than the rock far better than the tower and far better than the tent. And David isn't afraid to ask for it. This emotionally and and spiritually exhausted king who, who feels far from God and at the end of the earth, he's both distant and depressed. This man longs for the safest shelter, the strongest defense, the longest fellowship, 
and the closest relationship with the God who keeps his people. What an incredible, theologically rich and uplifting prayer set to music. And it's here to remind us when it's, when it's hard to pray, when it's difficult to pray, we should pray anyway. And when we do, we need to be confident, honest, intentional, reflective, theological, and intimate. Knowing that if we belong to God, when we're with him, we're home. We're home. Well, at this point in the song, he pauses for a well-placed sila. This is when our crestfallen comrade collects himself, takes a deep breath, and changes his tone entirely. He goes from despondent to confident because God not only keeps his people, he also keeps his promises. Keeps his promises. That's number two. When your heart faints and you don't feel like praying, Remember, God keeps his promises. Verses 5 through 8 begin with this air of certainty as he affirms God's attention. He says, For you, O God, have heard my vows. Notice he's not finished yet. He's still praying. I mean, his circumstances are still tough. They're still hard. But he no longer feels hollow because he's confident that despite his feelings of distance, God is near and God has heard him. God has paid attention to his prayers. David addresses him here the same way that he does at the start. He says, oh God. So his passion hasn't diminished. He's just, he's just redirected it. He's certain that God has listened to his vows. Now that's, that's interesting. Because this entire psalm is literally a cry for help, and yet his certainty doesn't rest in God's ability to hear him, but God's willingness to consider his vows. You see, all throughout the psalms, David is making promises in his prayers. He's making vows. When evil men are closing in, he says, God, protect me. Why? So I can praise you. When running for his life, he says, God, deliver me so I can keep on keeping on, so I can keep on serving you. You know, God honors that. God honors those prayers. He honors those vows and those promises and those petitions. Why? Because David honors him. Listen, when you're in trouble, it's okay to make promises back to God. And David did it. He did it all the time, and he would even remind God that he did it. He would remind God that he not only vowed to serve him when times were tough, but he made good on those promises when things got better. Unfortunately, though, that's not how most of us do. The waters rise, we cry out to the Lord, we make promises hoping to cut a deal with God, but as soon as the sun shines again, what do we do? We go right back to ignoring him and relying on ourselves for everything. Friend, that doesn't honor God. And what makes you think that you're going to change your behavior and he's going to change his mind the next time you're in trouble? Look, God knows the depths of your heart better than you do. And when you make a vow, God hears it and he holds you to it. 
Now, that, that's bad news for those who don't follow through. But it's good news for those who fear the Lord, for those who fear Him and truly want to serve Him, love Him, and live for Him every day. As we walk through the remaining verses here, David reminds us of a few truths that continue to add gas to our prayers. These reassurances were true for David, and they are also true for you, believer. First of all, the God who hears determines your destiny. Determines your destiny. Look at the rest of verse 5. He says, You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. In other words, those who honor God, who tremble when they worship him, receive an incredible inheritance as the last in a long line of undeserving recipients of grace. This isn't something we deserve or earn. This is a legacy that God gives to us because we belong to him. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the, this word heritage, it often refers to the land of Canaan, which is tied to the Abrahamic covenant, but it is also used in reference to the benefits of life found in God's promises. You see, God made us joint heirs with all the saints. He has done that. If you have been brought into the family, guess what? You're going to receive the same inheritance, the same heritage as everyone else who has been brought into the family as well. And history is moving toward a final day that will last forever. Like David, we currently enjoy benefits here and now for relying on the promises of God. But our heritage extends far beyond that to the eternal state of Revelation 22, where the Lord God will be our light and we will reign with him forever and ever. It is because God sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners that if you believe in him, trust in him for your salvation, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him, you will become a child of God himself and share in his inheritance. And in the meantime, in the meantime, your, your heritage, it still includes access to the Father through prayer and his attention when you cry out to him. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that wonderful? And it's all because the God who keeps his people keeps his promises. Ultimately, it is God who determines your destiny. Next, the God who hears defends his dynasty. Defends his dynasty. Uh, look at verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Now, some have argued that these verses couldn't possibly be about David. After all, he switches from first person to third person. He might live long. He may have a long life, but, and he may even live so long as to see multiple generations, but he's not going to live for all generations, and he's definitely not going to sit on that throne forever. So it couldn't possibly be about him. However, Let's not forget that David is writing this. He's writing it about himself from his present experience. And it is a song, 
I mean, it's a poetic prayer set to music. It's okay for David to talk about himself in third person for a while and switch back if he wants to. While he wouldn't be king indefinitely, he would also have an heir who will sit on the throne forever. And we need to keep that in mind as well. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, God told him, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. David will restate these promises again in Psalm 89, verses 36 and 37. There he says, His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. You see, David is simply praying for God's promises to be fulfilled. He begins by saying, prolong the life of the king. Give me more years so I can serve you longer. Now, before anyone is quick to say, now, wait a minute, that's selfish. I mean, why would David want to live longer? I mean, why couldn't he pray that prayer for somebody else? Well, no. I mean, this is very similar to the prayer that Hezekiah makes in Isaiah 38. And there he has a very like, rich theological reason for, for making a prayer like this. He argues there that those who die can't live in hope of God's faithfulness. Only those who are alive can thank the Lord and tell others about how good he is. You can only evangelize. You can only praise the Lord. You can only tell others about him if you're alive to do so. The dead have have had their time here on earth. They've moved on. They have lost that opportunity. So for as long as we have breath, for as long as we are alive, we can be used of the Lord to reach others to tell of his goodness, to encourage others in the truth. And that's exactly what, what David wants to do. And so it's not wrong. I mean, you know, it's okay. So long as, so long as that's our goal our, and our hope is to serve God longer, then why wouldn't we pray for more years and more opportunities to bless the Lord? It's a good thing. And... and And he goes on to pray that his dynasty would continue forever and that God's covenant faithfulness, his love and and his word would defend this dynasty for all time. This is why the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew is so important. Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David is mentioned first as the father of Jesus, even before Abraham, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise God made to David. His reign will last forever. And as both the son of God and the son of man, as the son of God himself and the son of David, David's dynasty has become God's dynasty. Listen, God's word is enough, but you can take it to the bank He will defend his dynasty. And finally, with verse 8, the God who hears deserves our devotion. He deserves our devotion. He says, So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. 
And no doubt you've heard the phrase, my, how the mighty have fallen. This psalm flips that around with, my, how the weak have ascended. He he begins distant, depressed, and in desperation. But he ends with praising, performing, and in peace. His praises are a continual song for as long as he is alive. He says, I will bless the Lord. And and like we saw in verse 5, he promises to make good on his vows. He says, I will constantly, I will consistently remember to live for you day after day, one foot in front of the others, one step at a time. My actions are going to match my profession. His circumstances, whatever they are, they're still here. They haven't gone anywhere, but David is well aware of this debt that he could never repay. And that changes everything. Church, the God who hears, who has determined our destiny, who has redeemed us by the blood of his son on the cross, who has defended his dynasty by faithfully watching over his word with steadfast love and perfect faithfulness. This God deserves our devotion. Why? Why? Because this God always keeps his promises. Always. Well, we've walked through this little psalm. Now let's step back for a moment and admire the big picture. Here's the good news. David's God is our God. The great God of Psalm 61 is the great God that we turn to when the lights go out in our lives. In fact, we have an even greater privilege than David because we know God more intimately than he did. We know him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our shelter. He is our rock that is so infinitely higher than we are. Jesus is our stronghold. He is our tower that we run to and find safety. Jesus is our sanctuary. He is our tent, the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is our safety. As we saw two weeks ago on Palm Sunday, In Matthew 23, he wept over Jerusalem and he shouted, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. And yet he has so graciously gathered us to the safety beneath his wings. Our destiny is secured. We share in his inheritance. His his heritage is our heritage. We share in his kingdom. And his dynasty will last forever. This Jesus is God, a very God. He is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, and the Rock of Ages. So when you find yourself at the end of the earth, and you have nothing left, including the will to pray, Turn to Jesus, our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It is because of him we can pray when we can't pray. Let's never forget our God and our King keeps his people and he keeps his promises and he is here for the faint of heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for the marvelous truths that are found here in your word. Lord, I pray for anyone who is in a pit of despair today, anyone who is drowning in their own distress. Lord, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would be their rock, their tower, their tent, and their wings. Lord, I pray for those who are feeling lost, who are feeling distant and far from you. Lord, I pray that you would listen to their prayers, that they would turn to you, that they would turn their eyes off of their circumstance and onto their Savior. Lord, we, we come before you this morning realizing that, that none of us, none of us are worthy of your grace. None of us are worthy of the, the destiny that you have set before us, of the inheritance, the heritage that you have set aside for us. And yet you love us so much. And you have graciously bestowed upon us this great gift of your salvation. Lord, we thank you for your dynasty. We thank you for your dynasty here on earth through the descendants of David. Lord, that you would send your son to earth as a descendant of David to become a man, to live as a man, to die as a man in the place of sinful man. Lord, I pray for anyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would quicken their heart, that you would stir their stomach. Lord, that they would desire these wonderful blessings and promises that we have examined just briefly today in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give them a hunger and a desire to know more. Lord, that this would be the beginning, the, the first planting of a seed in their life and that it would grow and, and blossom and bloom into a wonderful testament of your grace. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these things. I pray for any of us, Lord, who are distressed, who are down and out. Lord, I pray that you would lift their heads. Pray that you would give them the grace and the confidence that they need to raise their voices and cry out to you. Lord, I pray that you would bless those prayers. I pray that you would, I pray that you would dwell amongst your people. And Lord, I pray that your people would live a life in accordance with the promises and the vows that they make in their time of trouble. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who are known for our actions, known for our lives. Lord, that we would be a steady reflection of your grace and your glory in the world. And Lord, we pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.